we've got a lot to do tonight, so let's go ahead and uh, pray and get us started on this. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness, and for this, this study and for these men. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our minds to the task of the evening and then uh, give us a, uh, a fruitful time as we uh, celebrate uh, the, the incarnation here over the next few weeks. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, I'm going to forego the quiz tonight just for uh, sake of uh, getting through as much as possible. I figured the threat of a quiz was enough to get you to <laughs> study all the material. I thought it was a cute little one. Finals. So, I think we're on page 63. We're detailing the will of God. Spent a bit of time talking about the wills of God, the sovereign will of God, the moral will of God. And then we talked about the comprehensiveness of the plan of God, which runs into some uh, real interesting issues in that it, it includes things like evil, free acts of men. And so we had, to, we had to sort of wade through some of those issues. How can God's will include things that are that are free or things that are evil, and we spent and we ended up the time last time, Bible sixty two, answering two questions there in those text boxes. I think we can go fairly quickly through the rest of this material on the decree. We've, we've gotten through much of the uh, of the uh, controversial material, uh, but at least just for uh, for systematic sake, let's let's run through this. I think uh, much of this will be unobjectionable. I say here, the, well, our point here is uh, God's plan is free and unconditional, bottom of 62, uh, saying that uh, it rests on his good pleasure. God did not consult with anyone. No one instructed him. No one can say to him, Daniel 4, what are you doing? He does everything within the purpose of his will, and no one is able to say, you know, uh, why did you make me this way? Why did you? Uh, why did? Why did? Why did things unfold the way they did? I don't like it. Well, that's not your purview to make those kinds of questions because God's will is strictly His own. Now there are there are in some cases conditions within the will of God. Uh, so you know, for instance, with Nineveh, uh, the, there was an implication here. If you, unless you repent. Uh, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. So there's an, a condition there. But I don't think of that as implying that there is conditionality. There's no maybe in the will of God. So there's no conditionality in the will of God. So um, uh, that while there are built-in conditions within it, uh, it's not as though there's any question in God's mind what how it's going to unfold. Okay? Which means that since God's will has no contingencies, we have to conclude that he's not only decreed the events, but all of the means and results of the events. We've said this a couple of different ways already here. Uh, we, we talked about prayer, for instance. Why is prayer necessary? Uh, well, prayer is necessary because it is efficacious. It does accomplish much, James tells us. And so we might have, well... If God's already planned everything, well, then why should we pray? It's it's already it's already done. Well, part of the plan of God is for you to pray, with the result that God answers those prayers in the carrying out of His will. So, 
it's not as though there, there's any responsibility that is lost, personal responsibility that is lost, just because God has made certain what's going to happen. And I think we can see that in a couple of texts here. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of the Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant is, uh, Jesus, whom you anointed. And here's the interesting part. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So uh, the, the means here are included here in the end. Second Corinthians 2, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's not just you're saved automatically because you're elect. There's a process. You have to be saved according to this pattern here. You have to believe. And if you don't believe, you're not just going to be automatically brought in because you're elected. Uh, the election implies not only that election is is part of God's plan, but also all the all the pieces that surround it. And so, uh, so there's no absolution of responsibility here. And I'll come back to that at point F. It's an eternal plan. Again, sort of repeating things we've already gone through. Long ago, I ordained everything. In the days of old, I planned it. I make known the end from the standpoint of the beginning. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world. So all of these indicate here that uh, God determines all things from the standpoint of the beginning. Nothing is being made up as we go. Uh, But God has uh, ordained eternally all things that are going to occur. Okay. It's immutable, doesn't change. Uh, change of purpose, I say, can only occur because of imperfection, ignorance, impotence, or deceit. And that's the only reasons I can, can come up with why one might change change one's plans. Right? I have a plan, and why would I change my plan? Well, I'm, because I'm ignorant, because I'm impotent, because I'm deceitful, because I'm imperfect. Well, God is none of those things, and so there's no reason why his plan could possibly change. Uh, To change his plan would be changed perfection. So the death of Christ, even, is carried out according to the having-been-fixed will and foreknowledge of God. It's efficacious. There's no undecreed event or unfulfilled decree. Hodge gives some reasons for that, but uh, we have the text that suggests this as well. And here, and here, I wanted to slow down a little bit on point F here, though. But we've already mentioned this. But let's let's put out a couple of key texts here. God's plan doesn't absolve creatures of personal responsibility. And that's often the charge that's laid at the feet of those who have something of a Calvinistic persuasion. Well, if God planned it all, then well, first of all, we're fatalists, and then second of all. Uh, you know, we have no responsibility. Might as well just, you know, just go off and do our thing because God's already planned everything. But we find here many texts which uh, couple the will of God with personal responsibility, and there's there's no conflict in the mind of God. Look at a couple of these here. Matthew 18. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow, that's 
personal responsibility for you there. If you mess up, you better better be drowned. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. <laughs> Such things must come. This, this, these, these things are going to happen because they're decreed, but woe to the man through whom they come. So personal responsibility is not absolved just because there is certainty or necessity in the plan of God. Same kind of language there in Luke 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Go to his death is the implication here. But woe to the man who betrays him. Acts 2, again, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. But you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So it's according to God's plan, according to his foreknowledge, his purpose. And yet, he's not responsible for it. You put him to death. You nailed him to the cross. So again, personal responsibility and the absolute certainty of the decree of God are paired right with each other. It doesn't seem to be any hesitation in the biblical authors that this can be true. Even though it's difficult for us to, to you know, uh, you know, wrap our minds around. It's, it's certainly the case. How would you how would you answer that um, in Ephesians that uh, God prepared in advance our good works so that we did, yeah. and coupled with the individual who doesn't live up to his potential right. as a believer? I mean, he just doesn't get involved in you know serving in the church the way that he should. Taking advantage of you know opportunities to show good works. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm in much the same way we've just done right here. Um, sanctification isn't just automatic just because it's ordained. You have to go through. You have to go through the the process. You have to discipline yourself. You have to you know put your body under to uh, to uh, you know, uh, give all effort all diligence to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and and so on and so forth so uh, it's it's ordained by God and yet it's not automatic there's still personal responsibility involved in it of course of course there's there's some who do not I mean people 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 sanctification advances at varying rates and that's not unknown to God either. But would we say that God decreed that this individual would not have this many words? No. I mean, the decree of God includes everything right. in its scope. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, there's nothing excluded from the will of God. I mean, that's and, and that's that's probably probably where where you know, particularly the non. The, the Arminian jumps off the boat. There's just no way that God could create, could decree something that's evil or or less than perfect. And yet, that's that's the way it is. And 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 our and our response is, why did you make it this way? And I, I mean, it's different context, of course, but then Romans nine. But I think the answer is the same. Why did you make it this way? Why 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 didn't you? design things so that I was going to rapidly advance in my sanctification and move ever so close to perfection in this life. Why did you make me that way? Well, who are you to reply against God? Just, you're, that's the way I made it. That's the way I designed it. And that's the way it's going to unfold, even though 
your responsibility is still there. And it's there's probably a little bit of a dissatisfaction there. You wish you could know more of the details of it, but I'm not sure that I can say anything other than that. Have you added anything? No. Very in good works because God ordained you to engage in good works well if God ordained it then why do, why do you need to make the command well because your participation is part of it so the responsibility and the, and the willing are both set side by side and all of them seem to think there's attention but <laughs> the rest of us do but he doesn't seem to Uh, but it's not fatalism. No, we're not saying that God's plan is. Uh, uh, sometimes that's sometimes the accusation. Well, you just believe in fate things are just going to unfold a certain way. Well, not exactly because fate fate is sort of an impersonal kind of a thing. Let, let me see if I can't point out the differences between fatalism and predestination. Fatalism is blind necessity. There's no cause or end in view. Things are just happening. This is just the way it is. Fatalism countenances no intelligent causation. These are just, 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 this is what was meant to be by no one in particular. It's just there. Fatalism leaves no room for freedom. Being both certain and compulsory. And then fatalism operates on the basis of no moral or ethical standard. And predestination does. And so there's there's some differences, I think, between uh, God's all-encompassing decree, his, uh, his predestined plan, than the, uh, the, the uh, secular idea here of, of fatalism. So you'll, you often hear the accusation made uh, that we're fatalists. But I don't know that that follows here because there's, there's differences. Okay. Any summary questions on the will of God? I know that was somewhat hasty there. Probably more we could say. But Let's spend a little time then talking about the creation of the world. Remember our larger context here is the... Uh, is the uh, the interaction of God with all that is not God. Start. We have three points here. One is the uh, the uh, decree of God. Second is the creation of the world, and then the third point, which we may have to truncate here, is God's preservation uh, of his of his of, of the world and his providential direction of all things to their predetermined end. Let's just start here then with creation. I'm going to borrow something here from our seminary doctrinal statement here. Uh, definition of creation, it seems pretty good to me. 
Uh, I sign it every year. So <laughs> uh, creation is that voluntary, immediate, supernatural act of God, whereby for His own glory and according to His eternal counsel, in six successive days, twenty-four hours each, He gave existence to all things in distinction from Himself. That's pretty good, good way of putting it. Concise. I think it covers all the bases. Uh, a couple of definitions we need to, uh, to to put out here. The universe, that is, all that is not God, is not infinite or eternal. That seems to be the, the goal of the evolutionist. Both of those, those of this, they, they, they want to expand everything out both in terms of Make matter and time eternal. So uh, there's the the. uh, I mean, even you can probably even say between when you went to school and learned evolution and the evolution they're treating today, there's been an expansion. It's it's more billions than it was when you went to school. When I went to school. So, um, but that's not the, the. But I think that's and that seems to be the goal. To, to make time eternal and make matter eternal, and if 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 the evolutionists can succeed in that, they squeeze God out of existence effectively. The scriptures teach that there was a time when the universe had no existence. God exists in the eternal present, outside time and space, as we mentioned earlier. So there's a sphere of divine existence that was before time and before matter, or outside of it. We looked at these before when we talked about the timelessness of God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you brought forth the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Okay, so there was a time when all things were not, and God made them. So there's a definite starting point of the universe that starts out both Testaments. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Same thing in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and was God, and all things were made by them. And it's a voluntary act of, really, of the triune God. It was not coerced. It's not as though God had to create the universe. Uh, and uh, so he product of a free mind. He made the earth by his power, by his wisdom, and by his understanding. The whole trinity is involved in this. First uh, Corinthians 8, 6 perhaps is our go-to text, for, at least for the first two persons. By him and for him are all things in terms of the creation and through him, through Christ, are all things, and so uh, we see that. And then the Spirit seems to be something, I say here, of an executing agent, or a sustaining agent, perhaps we could add there too. Remember in Genesis 1-2, he was hovering over the waters, apparently sort of holding things together until they're completed. Um, and uh, and uh, also in Psalm 104, verse 30, there's the implication that the Holy Spirit holds all living things in life, and if his spirit is withdrawn, then death immediately occurs. So so the Holy Spirit seems to have some sort of a preserving, sustaining uh, role. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Son, a more of a mediating role, and the uh, Father, a planning role, even though those things sort of intermingle at times. Okay? The initial creation was ex nihilo, the initial matter, 
heaven and earth was made out of nothing. The universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen was not made from what was visible. Okay, so this term ex nihilo, out of nothing, applies to the original creation. Now, uh, we recognize you know, in the subsequent events of the creation week, uh, God uses the material he made on day one, uh, such that the earth brought forth trees and, and such, which has been a, just a fascinating thing to have seen. Um, no one did, nobody videotaped it. It's too bad, because it would have been a fascinating thing to see. But apparently there was just a, a very rapid growth of these trees that just sort of walk out of the ground. Uh, and uh, so that's not ex nihilo per se, out of nothing, but the original material on day one was. Okay. Okay, and you can see that uh, they're super, certainly supernatural, and that and that that's something I want to make sure we recognize too. Some will say, "Aha, the earth brought forth the trees," and we know trees grow very slowly, and so these days must have been, you know, hundreds of years if it's going to produce full-grown trees. Uh, but it p- appears there that uh, what we have in Genesis. It, one is still supernatural, even though it's not ex nihilo technically uh, from from days two two forward. Okay, because uh, we see the same phrase: "Let there be." It was so. So it's like uh, I remember Doctor McLaughlin used to, you know, he had a very get away with words, and <coughs> Doug McLaughlin was my teacher in in Bible college, and he has, he would say, "God said." Light be, light was. He <laughs> uh, sort of captures the picture there. Uh, um, by the Lord's decree, the heavens were made by a mere word from his mouth. All the stars of the sky, which is quite a feat there, piles up the waters of the seas, puts the ocean in storehouse. He spoke, came into existence, he issued his decree, it stood firm. Scripture explicitly denies the use of uniformitarian natural processes in the formation of the universe. So uh, it's, it's very important, I think, to look here at Second Peter three. Perhaps we can see a good idea to turn to this one. It's one of the uh, very, one, uh, a very important passage here about uh, how God operates in His universe. Um, and uh, it's almost as though Peter understands what's going to unfold in the uh, in the in the uh, in the history of mankind and the, up into the into the modern period and such. Because it's it, it's it's uncanny how well he anticipates this. Of course, writing under inspiration, but uh, uh, but. Uh, the question that's being asked and answered in Second Peter is whether Christ is going to come back. Peter's arguing for the certainty of the coming of our Lord, and part of the uh, part of the response to his his claim is that uh, these these people are saying, you know, you, uh, scoffers come, verse three, following their own evil desires, and say, "Where is this coming?" He promised. Yeah, we don't believe in this second coming of Christ. Jesus is suddenly going to appear in the sky and put an end to everything, right? No, that's never going to happen. Why not? Because ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it always has been since the beginning of creation. 
And then Paul, Peter answers this, but they deliberately forget something. That long ago, by God's word, the heavens, poof, existed. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. So God has a history of doing miracles. Uh, so, so not everything in the universe always follows the natural laws that God has set in place to ordinarily govern history. There are important uh, events in the history of the world where God steps in and does things suddenly and dramatically. He says one of those is creation. God spoke and poof, everything came into being. And then he goes on and says, uh, they keep going on, verse 6 talks about the flood. You know, that's, a, that's another dramatic event that did, doesn't follow the pattern. You know, this is a one-time event, and so it's again, it's not very well governed by scientific method because scientific method, you know, requires repeatability. Well, this flood happened once, and promise it'll never happen again. And he goes through a number of examples here. Um, actually, there's some in chapter two uh, and some in chapter three here, uh, where 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 Peter points out that God has a habit. He he routinely steps in and does miracles, and here's one he's going to do. So don't don't imagine that just because you've never seen Jesus appear in the sky doesn't mean he never will. He's promised that he will, and so he will. And so I think it all sort of comes together to say that you know God's creation didn't have, and I, perhaps not the major point that Peter's trying to make, but if it's not true, then his point's lost, right? that things came into being suddenly, with a poof. Uh, God spoke and they came into being. There was no following of the natural laws. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to keep going back and back and back in and, and the evolutionary process uh, and, you know, over, over the course of billions of years. God spoke and things came into existence. Acts 17, from one man. He made every nation of men. I mean, from one man. Not he doesn't even he doesn't even go to the two people. You know, Adam and Eve. Eve came from Adam too. You know, so from one man came all people. And so again, this this clear reference to the fact that there was no there was there was no prehistory for for Adam. Adam was just created. There was no uh, there was no evolutionary process that led. To his, uh, you know, emergence, He's, he was suddenly created, and all persons come from him. I, I also say here that a sudden creation only alone makes sense of the biblical analogies in the ex- explanation of other theological phenomena too. Uh, 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 consider this here when we talk about regeneration and illumination. God said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1, you know, let there be light. And boom, it happened. In the same way, he has made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Son of God in the face of Christ. You know, we talk about, you know, the lights came on. You know, illumination. It was sudden. And and he said, yeah, it's exactly like creation was. They're 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 the same, at least in kind. Same with resurrection. God makes the dead alive and summons things that do not yet exist as though they already do. 
I mean, that's that's God's pattern. There's nothing, nothing existed. God spoke, and boom, they came to be. And he says that's exactly the same way the resurrection's going to be. People are dead, and you know they've 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 fallen asleep, and God's going to speak, and boom, they're all back alive again. And 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 so and so the so if if one fails to be true, then both fail to be true. And so it's fairly clear here that we're not talking about something that takes a very, very long process. Rather, it's something that happened very suddenly. We also have other points that point to to this sudden supernatural creation. The fact that the whole creation happened in six days points to its supernatural character. And then also, I think, by comparison, the, the, the spot instantaneous nature of God Christ's earthly miracles seem appropriate here as well. You know, God doesn't require processes in the conducting, uh, the, the, in, the, in, in the carrying out of his miracles. So when, when Jesus turned the water into wine, yeah, there, there was, it may look at that, you may look at that wine and say, huh, that used to be grapes growing on trees. And somebody picked them and somebody put them into this mosh pit, you know, and they just stamped them out. And then they, you know, they let it, they let it uh, rest for, breathe for, you know, period of years. Make it, make it better. I don't know. I don't know how to, how to make wine. So <laughs> I might be saying the wrong things here. But, but we would look at that and say there, there must have been some sort of process that produced this wine. But no. The miracle, the nature of this miracle was such that it, it bypassed the process. It just happened. Water became wine, um, and so that's that's the way we should think of the creative activity of God. It's it's not something that requires process in order to occur. It happens suddenly and immediately, supernaturally and miraculously, and that seems to be the thing. Uh, that uh, that uh, the thing that drives the 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 theistic forms of evolution is that very point that they're trying to figure out how these things could have done uh, happened naturally, and that's not something we need to do. Creation was supernatural, and uh, that's that. And once you once you gather that, then uh, uh, the uh, the the problems in Genesis 1 to 11 really dissipate rather quickly. Okay? Does that follow? Let's talk a little bit about these 24 hour days because there's a huge amount of debate. There's a lot you can say about them. But, uh, but just a, a few points here. One of those things you want to have at the tip of your brain when people ask, particularly thinking of, of a leadership kind of a role. These are, this is the kind of question that comes up a lot. People have ideas. If you can have these these kind of reasons here why they have to be ordinary days, I think you can, you can be well equipped to answer those questions. But we have to do it carefully here. I think sometimes uh, the, the, there is a careless way of doing this. You know, day means day. Day always means 24 hours. Well, if you say that, you're actually going to be disappointed because day sometimes doesn't mean 24 hours in the Bible. And so we have to be very cautious in, in how we make this argument. It's a little technical here, particularly this first point, but uh, perhaps you can uh, make the make the connections here. This t- Hebrew term, yom, the day, 
when appears when it appears as it does in Genesis one as a singular noun that is not part of a compound grammatical construction. That's the technical part here. It always refers exclusively to normal twenty four hour days. There's a there's a uh, there's a there's a there's a pattern in Hebrew whereby you can make these compound phrases. Uh, for instance, one that's familiar to you is the day of the Lord. Okay, um, the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. Okay, um, it's a period of time where God sets things straight. Um, um, actually, there's more than one day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord can extend for you know a period of years. Uh, the end times are sort of collectively called the day of the Lord. Um, but this is in a what we call a compound Hebrew structure. Uh, in fact, there's actually a, a there's a there's a there's a little particle that sort of holds the, the phrase together, Yom uh, Yahweh. Uh, but then there's this little makif that actually connects those words and makes it a, a construct. And when you see that, sometimes that word day does not mean 24-hour period. But when you see the the word Yom day by itself in the singular and it's not part of one of these compound structures. In that case, every one of those instances, you have a literal day, a 24-hour day in view. We also see from Genesis 1 a number of other indicators that these are ordinary days. Firstly is the use of numerical adjectives with the term young, first, second, third day, etc. Also signals literal days. There's 150 times where you find numerical adjectives with the word yom. And there's only one exception to this rule. It takes place in Zechariah 14.7. Now, so we don't have a unanimous thing. So it's not every single time you see a numerical adjective that it has to be a an ordinary day. Um, but 149 times out of 150, it is. Actually, uh, uh McCabe used to teach that it was all all of them, and uh, a couple of us, when we took our creationism class, we found one that wasn't, so we had to, we had to adjust the notes there, <laughs> but so there's one occasion, but all, all the others, all of the others, uh, um, and, I, and I actually have looked them up on this particular instance, I don't always look up everything that I have here, but in this case I did. Also, we have this phrase, evening and morning points to a normal day. Uh, if a day is an eon, we can't talk about the morning or the evening. Um, uh, morning and evening are terms that only work with normal days. Probably the biggest argument here is found in uh, Exodus 20, verses 9 to 11, where we find discussion of the Sabbath. We find here, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So, in this case, Sunday through Friday, those six days, you are to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, Saturday, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you should not do any work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, and everybody in your, in your family. Why? Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and earth. He, he established the work week. He worked for six days, Sunday to Friday. And during that period, he made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then he rested on the seventh day. And so for this reason, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and made it holy. Well, this doesn't make any sense if these days in Genesis 1 are uh, lengthy periods of time, eons, or something like that. They have to be ordinary days. Otherwise, the the whole pattern falls down. God worked six days and rested one. So... The Israelites are supposed to work six days and rest one. It's not that they work for six eons and rest for one eon. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. So this, I think, is a, a particularly helpful passage in establishing these are ordinary days. And finally, logically, the sequence of creation demands rapid creation. So if you've got trees and plants being created on day four and the pollinating birds and insects and other animals don't show up until the following day, well, you need to have those things come pretty quickly here, particularly if some variations of plants, so you, you just have a rather short window where they can be pollinated. Uh, you, certainly you can't have a period of hundreds or thousands of years. You've got to have the pollination process continuing year by year, or else the, 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 the plants would fail. And so there, there has to be some sort of a rapid uh, uh, passage of time here in Genesis 1. So the creation happened over the period of six successive, normal, 24-hour days. Okay, any questions on that point? Particular, particularly under attack here in our, in our world, not only in the, the secular realm, but also within... Christian circles as well. There's a lot of a lot of folks who just resist this kind of material. Another question is, when did it happen? Uh, there's some debate. Exact age of the Earth is not known. A plain reading of the text indicates that it's happened recently. That is. We would count it in thousands rather than millions or billions of years. I'd say probably not in excess of 10,000 years. Uh, James Usher is sort of famous for employing all the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 to argue that the creation took place exactly 4004 BC. Actually, gives the time of day and the precise date. You can actually read it. It's terrible problem. Uh, but, uh, and, and it, of course, his is famous because his his dating system uh, ends up at the top of the pages in the old Schofield Reference Bible. So if you're familiar with that, you, the date, you, you go to Genesis 1, 4004 B.C. So, so that's become sort of indelibly printed on your mind if you cut your teeth on that Bible as as many of us older folk did. There's pr- there are some reasons to think that that may be a little bit too tight. Uh, I say written historical records demonstrably argue for an additional thousand years. It's a rather fascinating study to discover that uh, Egyptian writing, Sumerian writing, and Chinese writing systems both uh, all three uh, appear between around 3200 BC, give or take 100 years, um, and it's it's just remarkable uh, that all three of them seem to develop independently of each other around 3200 BC, and we have records from that from that time on. Well, if in fact there's no gaps in the genealogies at all, the flood 
took place in 2600 BC, which means there's 600 years of writing, which I think of something as, as, as sort of hard evidence. You know, there's sometimes there's soft evidence that you know, um, you know, these the, the tells these 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 heaps upon which the cities, uh, uh, you know, are built over the course of years, and you say, well, that tell is this tall, and so therefore it must be ah, that 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 city must be fifteen hundred years old, or you know, it's this tall, and so that 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 city must be four thousand years old. Well. There's a lot of factors that can make that tell grow or 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 stay the same for a long period. Of time. But but writing, on the other hand, is something of a hard evidence. Uh, it would take a really vast conspiracy theory for all three of these cultures to agree simultaneously to create a a, a fake history for 600 years uh, in order to in order to, to deceive people. Some people do believe this, uh, but it doesn't seem possible. And as as we look closer at the scriptures, we actually find some hints uh, of, of reasons why there may be some gaps in those genealogies. Most specifically, you find in Luke 3.36 an additional name that's not found in Genesis 11, named Canaan. Um, and so if you look at the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is a, which is sort of a, normally thought of as sort of a rogue, uh, a, a, a rogue translation of the Pentateuch, uh, that was preserved by the Samaritans, those who, you know, remember those who stayed behind during the exile and, uh, and they, they created they sort of they sort of had their own little tradition of the Pentateuch and you could if you look at the Samaritan Pentateuch and the and the Septuagint you actually find that there are a great number of names in these lists that aren't in the Hebrew uh, which give us good reason to think that there's a there's anywhere from 900 to 1300 years that are unaccounted for which pushes the creation back to 7,700 BC uh, excuse me uh, 7,400 years ago so probably uh, about 5,300 BC I don't think we're, we're making any compromises by saying that the earth is seven or 8,000 years old uh, you're not going to win any arguments in the academy by saying oh no no I'm not a 6,000 or I'm an 8,000 or uh, it's not going to get you any brownie points in the academy that's not why I'm Suggesting that there's there's uh, you know some unaccounted for years, it just seems like in order to make the biblical history work, you have to have a little bit more time than just six thousand years. And that that sort of uh, makes me persona non grata in some young earth creationist communities, but I, I think we've got good biblical reason to think that the uh, Earth is probably a little older than 6,000 years, but not much, not much. Thoughts on that? Did you just say something, I was going to say, it's like these guys about Genesis 11, the begatting? Oh, what specifically? Well, I mean, in the sense of, you just said there's a gap, but right. if you read it, you don't seem to see a gap. Right, right. How do you explain that? Yeah, uh, well, there's a couple couple of answers. One, it does seem like there's there's some names missing. So, so that's that's probably the biggest explanation for it. But this this actually this this begetting 
begetting, <laughs> this begetting idea probably doesn't necessarily, probably what we have is these people start begetting, they start having children at a certain age, but but the uh, but the, uh, the, the 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 person that shows up in the genealogy may not have been begotten immediately. Might may not have been the firstborn, uh, and we find this particularly sustained in uh, uh, in, in in Abraham's genealogy, where Nahor is excuse me Terah right Terah his father begat three sons. Well, well, not at the same time. Were they triplets? You know, it says when he was a certain age, he begat three sons, uh, which suggests that he begins the begetting process when he was seventy, uh, rather than all three of them were born when he was seventy. And so you've, so you, you you've you've got room elasticity again, not huge elasticity. It's not as though he was having children over the course of thousands of years, uh, but it gives us you know it gives us some wiggle room ten, twenty, thirty years. Maybe even more in those days, uh, so there's there's room for for extra time uh, in those in those sequences. Okay, we find that the creation was functionally mature at its inception. Trees were created mature with its seed in it. The animals were created mature. Again, probably with their seed in them. So the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg, is the chicken with his seed in him, or in her, I guess. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, so the chicken came first, and the egg was inside her. So there you finally got that question answered. Okay. Uh, the, the animals were created mature, immediately able of flying and swimming. They were swimming about and flying through the air. Immediately upon their creation, Adam and Eve were created as adults. They're immediately capable of complex thinking, speaking, copulation, etc. And the stars were instantly visible, with light already reaching the earth. Okay, so, you know, you say, well, this is 10,000 light years away. Well, there's that that light stream was all, had already reached the earth, and so there's this apparent age uh, that's there. Some would suggest that this is means that God was somewhat deceptive. You know, it, it looks like this tree's been here 200 years, but actually it hasn't. You know, would, if we if we sliced it open, would we find that there were tree rings? I don't know. It's a good question, uh, but I, I, I'm inclined to think probably there were because God created things with apparent age. Uh, same thing. You know, the question: Did Adam have a belly button? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm inclined to think probably yes, but I, because he was created with apparent age. Uh, but uh, again, I'm not going to lock in. What about soil? Does anyone ever bring that up? Right. Soil is decomposed. Exactly. It's the soil that we know. Decomposed at the end of the year. Right. Before yeah. the fall, the tree plants were still subject to death. Yes. But but probably, uh, almost true. certainly, there was there was topsoil created. It may have looked as though there were thousands of years worth of 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 you know, dead trees and plants and such in order to make that topsoil. But God apparently created it 
with a layer of topsoil already there. Hydroponic. <laughs> so, and, and I, this doesn't mean that God was deceptive. He's just making the earth a, a, a workable place to be. Because I saw Carl Sagan would scoff about that. I remember him saying, what kind of person believes in a God that would create an earth that's deceptive? Yeah. It's like a very weak argument. It is. Sure yeah. <clears throat> Again, if you if you read John Whitcomb's book, the Creation the, the Genesis Flood, he, he addresses this and says, Okay, so Jesus does miracles too. He took up five loaves and fed five thousand people with them. So he tears this bread apart and, and suddenly we have oodles of bread, piles of bread that was never planted. That was that never grew. That was never harvested. That was never winnowed. That was never ground into flour. Was never was never uh, cooked into bread. It just it just he just made bread. So this bread has apparent age. It looks as though processes took place, but they didn't. And so th- again, this it goes back to this whole this whole idea here that a miracle working God isn't bound by processes. He can just create mature things um, and apparently that's exactly uh, what he did Okay, and that's basically my, my answer there in that text box okay. and then we say here that uh, the creation was complete this is something that's sort of a, a, a you know this is sort of a segue into our next section on preservation and providence God doesn't create any longer the, after the creation week, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array, and God finished His work. And, and I, I'm seeing I'm seeing some real finality to that. There is no more creating work that God does now. Occasionally, he throughout the the history of of the canon, we actually find occasional miracles, and they really are that. Miracles are not all that common, even in the Bible. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, so so God does occasionally suspend, but normally He doesn't do that anymore. He He puts in place processes, secondary causation. Uh, you know, even you know, he, he, we sometimes talk about a baby being created or that a baby is a miracle. But the end, of, and now, now God didn't create a baby. You know, you and your wife did. You, you made that baby out of existing material, and it wasn't a miracle. It was, it was just a it happened all the time. It's just a process. It's no more a miracle than you know an animal having a, a baby animal or a, or a seed germinating and becoming a blade of grass. It's a secondary causation at that point. So miracle seems to be that the miraculous creation of things seems to be more or less suspended at the, this time with occasional exceptions uh, when God performs a miracle. This is important. Yeah. In the case of turning water into water, turning the loaves into many loaves. So we would say that God's using the same process that he, when um, wheat is turned into more wheat, through the normal natural processes, you plant wheat in the ground and it grows into wheat, we would 
say that God just miraculously compressed that, or did that? Well, suspended it really. I mean, he yeah, just not so he did it really fast. Uh, he basically suspended those processes. But it's but that's it's not an act of creation. Well, in the same. I, I, I think I'd be I'd be okay calling it an act of creation. Did he use existing materials? Well, in theory, yeah, he took those five loaves and pulled them apart, and they became five thousand loaves, or whatever, whatever the case may be. But it seems like material was created, uh, so so I'm I'm okay calling that an act of creation. But it's but it's an exceptional. It's not normal. Normally, God doesn't create any longer, and I think that's wrapped up in that idea. On the seventh day, it was done. He finished. And from this point forward, providence kicks in. Secondary causation so he kicks in. He wasn't creating anything new. He was replicating. Right, know, right. Yeah, he, he puts processes in place whereby they can multiply and replicate. But it's not proper to... It, it, and sometimes we talk about creating a baby or a mir- miraculous birth of a child. But it really isn't a miracle. It's cool, sure. It's it's special when it's yours. I, I get it, but it's what, not a miracle. What about the immaterial part of the person? Yeah, I th- that yeah, that's that, you know we're we're getting ahead of ourselves with the doctor of man, but yes, it's called the Traducian theory of 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 soul making. Mom and dad make the soul <clears throat> out of. Out of pre-existing regeneration is right. a miracle but it's, yeah. it's a moral miracle so we're talking about physical miracles here we're talking about miracles physical but regeneration is a spiritual miracle right so yeah. there is an ongoing but that's not probably what we're talking about yeah we, we don't have physical miracles we have moral miracles but not not physical miracles okay I think this is really important. I I, I do spend a little time talking about the importance of the doctrine of young earth creationism because it's it's particularly under attack right now. Um, And uh, there there are a great many Christians who reject the idea of young earth creationism, and I think it's a rather serious problem. First, it really is it it really smacks against the authority of Scripture. The Bible says it happened a certain way, and for us to say, nah, couldn't have, really is a statement that I have more faith in the scientific method than I have in Genesis 1 to 11. You know, it's, it's really a, an assault on biblical authority, firstly. Second, I think adherence to young earth creationism is vital to hermeneutical fidelity. What, what do I mean by that? Well, if we're going to say, well, Genesis 1 to 11, you just can't read normally, then why would I read anything else normally? Okay, and so, and so it's, it's not just Genesis 1 to 11. It never stays there. You know, that, that, that what, that's what ends up happening. You know, the, the ends of the Bible, eschatology and origins, uh, are, uh, you know, when those are eroded, it never just stays there. Eventually, it works its way into the present until we are saying, "Well, you know, those miracles, you know, Jonah, that couldn't have been virgin birth, couldn't have, couldn't have happened." And so it it ultimately erodes into the rest of the Bible. That's why I say, if you read one part of the Bible this way, eventually you read the whole Bible this way, and that's that's a scary thought. Well, Paul wrote, "By one man's sin entered into the world." 
property plan. Right. And then, and, that, and that's the point. That's the, you've, you've sort of stumbled into point C here. There's a number of critical doctrines that rest on young earth creationism. Solidarity of the human race. There, there cannot have been an, an evolved Adam and an evolved Eve. That just can't have happened because God made from one man, Genesis, Acts 17, the whole human race. And your point here in Romans 5, you have brought that up too. The imputation and inheritance of original sin. Adam sinned and plunged all of his relatives, all of those who would descend from him, into sin. It's because there was a solidarity between Adam and all other humans. The whole complex metaphor of the second Adam, I think, rests on it. If if, if we if we rest on the second Adam or the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, there's an implication there has to have been a first one. And if the first one's fabricated, then the whole, the whole thing starts to erode. And then also this whole association of Adam's sin to death and decay, not only for the human race in Romans 5, but to the whole creation that groans until the restoration of the sons of God. So all of these come together to suggest uh, that uh, young earth creationism is not just an isolated issue that you can waffle on and it doesn't really matter too much. It, it matters. It matters to a great many other doctrines of scripture. Okay? So that's a real quick introduction to the doctrine of creation. We could we could really spend a lot of time a seminary class that uh, uh, is, is on that topic. But uh, there's at least a, uh, you know an introduction to the main points. The rest of this is given over to the discussion of God's sustaining or preserving work, and then His providence. I'm I'm going to skip preservation, simply the upholding of everything uh, by its properties and processes by the by a, a continual act of God. There's really nothing. In this section, I, I wouldn't think that is that is, that is particularly troublesome or uh, or controversial, except to say that God preserves everything. God God holds everything together by Him. All things consist. He keeps us in life. He gives all men life and breath. When He withdraws our breath, we die, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's really no no debate about that. But I do want to spend a little bit of time the last 15 minutes we have talking about providence. Preservation sort of is is sort of an objective, almost a little bit impersonal. God just sort of keeps everything held together and and keeps it moving. Where providence takes that one step further and says, not only does God hold everything together uh, in some sort of a you know sort of a basic sense, but actually takes everything in His universe and directs it towards his predetermined ends. And so that's what we mean by providence. So you, so you can see here McLean's definition, continuous work of the triune God, whereby he controls all things in the universe for the purpose of certainly bringing about the fulfillment of his own wise, loving, and perfect plan. Strong has a very similar definition. We also see in this word providence the word provide. I think that's uh, that's that's the basic word. It's a, it's a, that's the root providing. 
the idea of benevolent provision is wrapped up in this idea of providence. Um, so by his providence, God meets our needs. He provides for us. And not only our needs, but also our chaste desires. That's a, a, a pattern here that, that, that uh, exceeds what evolution can possibly do. It's not as though we simply adapt so that we can survive, but actually God gives us things that we want so that we not only survive, but also thrive and have delight. Uh, so, you know, Psalm 104, he makes wine to gladden the heart of man. You know, it's, again, don't get hung up on the wine question here, but, but, but the point here is we don't just have to drink water. We've got coffee in front of us. We've got, we've got pop. We've got, uh, fruit juice. We've got, we've got all kinds of things that we can drink. Why do we have them? Do we need them? No, we can, we can, we can make do with water. Uh, but we enjoy it, you know. So God gives us what we des- des- desire and delight in. Same with uh, oil to make our face to shine. Yeah. Probably oils we lose a little bit of the sense of that because we're not living in that ancient Near Eastern culture here. Uh, but but the whole idea of soaps and and deodorants and such. Do we need those things? No, yeah, but it's very, <laughs> it's very happy. It's your help down here. It's your help, <laughs> right? And, and that's and that's and that's the, that's that's the nature of God's providing impulse. He not only gives us what we need, what we need just to survive, but He gives us what satisfies and delights the heart and and the, and the soul of man, sustains his heart, makes his face shine, gladdens his heart. And so that's that's the nature of God's providing impulse, and He extends it not only to uh, man in His image or His own elect, but to all persons. And even in this case, providence seems to extend even to uh, to plants and animals. The trees drink their fill. The animals have homes. You know, it's, I mean, it's, the idea here is more than just they have a place to stay at night. They have homes, which, you know, you, you catch the difference of nuance there. They all seek their food from God, and he just gives it to them. Consider how the lilies grow. They're clothed in beauty. And, and, and the point is, what? Well, if God takes care of the grass of the field and makes it beautiful, even though it's going to be put in, you know, it's going to be harvested and, and you know, baled and put in barns the next day. If God's going to, as God's going to make the, the life of the grass pleasant, how much more is he going to make our life present, who, who means so much more? And again, I point here, not only does he do this for uh, regenerate persons, but also re- unregenerate persons, so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out and find him. This tolerance, kindness, patience that God shows, this provision that he makes, should lead people to repentance. But even more so, we see, as believers, we have this assurance that the ultimate good of believers is perfectly consonant with God's universal purposes. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purposes. And so, so we find here God's providence is, is really a, a source of real you know, 
uh, moral sustenance and doing. It really, it really helps us to you know work our way through life. God provides, and He's directing us towards our end. Sometimes we don't see all the pieces and all the all the steps along the way, and perhaps we wonder about them. But we have this assurance that God is bringing all things to their appointed end, which is a very good end. And so we can we can we can have a great deal of confidence in this in this doctrine. It includes the universe. His throne in heaven, he rules over everything, over the forces of nature. Uh, you read through Job 37, really all of 37 and 38, he talks about how God is God is providentially riding on the wings of the clouds, and he's, he's sending out thunderbolts. And you, know, you, you think, well, that's all random, right? No, no, no. <laughs> Nothing's random about that. God is actually directing the clouds and directing these bolts out of the blue that seem to come random. No, they're not random. God directs each one. All all of these events of nature are part of his providential outworking of all things to their own appointed end. He sends these lightning bolts where they're intended, he says. Even the tr- catastrophes and tragedies of history. Psalm 104 speaks of the flood. You know how the flood rose up under the under the supervision of God, and then went back down, and then God put barriers in place that the sea would never cross them again. You know, all of this is 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 directed by the providence of God. If you think of the flood, a massive tragic event. And yet it was all providentially overseen, facilitated by, by, by God. And you can see here, jo, uh, Joseph, Psalm, uh, Genesis 50, you meant it for evil. But God, in his providence, was actually working out a rather meticulous plan that none of us saw. Now we do. How God was bringing it all together. God meant it for good. And all the other, uh, don't have to go through each one of these, but uh, the affairs of the nations. Yeah, the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So if God wants a certain end to be accomplished, yeah, he can He can bring the most improbable of people to power to accomplish his, his ends. Uh, I'm not, not trying to make any... <laughs> Specific points here, but uh, but uh, you know you've seen that throughout history. God takes and, and, and you, know, you see these these sudden twists and turns and in world politics, and you say, "Wow, this did God see this coming?" Yeah, God saw it coming. He planned it. He planned it. Every every piece of it, even the trivial affairs of life, are part of God's providence. The rolling of dice, uh, plans of the heart with the result then that we have to say at least in our minds I don't think we have to say it aloud but the thought should go through our minds this is what I plan to do tomorrow Lord willing sometimes we do say that I think, and I think it's a, it's a healthy thing to say and to remind ourselves of routinely I don't, know that, I, I don't think the point is that you have to say this every time you make a plan but it should be in the back of your mind that my plans may not be God's plans God's plans are going to win Either way, even in sin, God is at work. Sometimes preventing it, sometimes limiting it, sometimes permitting it, always directing. 
And uh, we'll come back to this question here of providence and miracle. What's the difference? Well, miracle, we suggest here, uh, involves the imposition of supernatural power and the suspension or reversal of natural causation. That's what I mean by a miracle. And if we're following uh, Acts 4.16, miracles are undeniable and evident to many. So a miracle is something that suspends uh, the, 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 the natural causation, does something that is obviously undeniably evident that this is, that, that this is not normal. Providence, on the other hand, involves secondary causation. That is, it, it employs normal processes and, and patterns that God has put in place uh, for the, the function of the universe. We have good reason to think that miracles are limited in their usage. I'm not saying that I can limit God's use of miracles. I can't put God in a box and that's sometimes the, the thought. You, know, you can't put God in a box. I, 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 no, I can't put God into a box. But God can put himself into a box. And it does appear that this is the case. And I've got just a couple of points there. Second Corinthians 12, 12. Paul describes miracles as signs of an apostle. Just that statement there sort of implies then that miracles are restricted in their usage. They're signs of an apostle, and I think perhaps in context here, probably would include prophets as well. But they're signs of a, a, a prophet or an apostle, but they're not signs of a Christian. They're, they're, they're not the normal fare. They're not the signs of a pastor. They're restricted in their usage, and to the degree that we make miracles commonplace, their narrow function in attesting to prophets Apostles to Jesus Christ is diminished. Okay, so there are signs of an apostle, not signs of just everybody, or or signs of a Christian. Same thing here in, in Hebrews six five, talking about miracles being powers of the age to come. Well, there's there's an implication there, right? They're not powers of the present age. They're powers of the age to come, and we're probably referencing back here to Matthew twelve. Uh, uh, it, I think probably precisely here uh, in uh, the author of Hebrews is been saying, okay, these miracles happened so that you could see that this was Jesus Christ. And what happened? Well, most of the Jews said, no, 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 these are the works of Beelzebub. And and the author of Hebrews is saying, well, you, you didn't, you weren't, you weren't drawn in by that. You accepted these as miracles. Well, and, and then what's the warning? If you taste of the powers of the age to come and then turn away, then you've committed the unpardonable sin. That's why I say it. I think it's Matthew 12 that he has in view, because that's exactly what he says in Matthew 12. That's, that's, that, that's an unpardonable sin. A, a, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This, 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 this demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah through the power of the Spirit, not Beelzebub. If you commit that sin, there is no, there, there is no, there is no uh, possibility. There's no, uh, there is, there is no, there's no recourse. 
Um, but you saw the powers of the coming age. You saw a glimpse into the kingdom. You saw a glimpse into the way things are going to be in the coming age when Jesus is king. Okay, These are not powers of the present age. These are not routine things that happen all the time. Otherwise, it would dilute what was going on in the Gospels. Okay, So they are not features of the present age. And I think this is the best explanation of Christ's miracles during his first advent. I also add here that what passes as miracle today rarely, if ever, meets the defining criteria of genuine biblical miracle. And again, I pull point to Acts 4.16. The purpose of miracles, as described above, demands that they be undeniable and evident to many, which is how Scripture defines them. The, the, scripture, the, the miracles that take place in Scripture are always fantastic. They're, they're, they're fabulous. They're, 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 they're high-profile things that that no one can explain other than this is an act of God. And this is the nature of miracles. And and, and what, what tends to happen in the modern day when we talk about, you know, yeah, somebody got cancer and they got better. It must have been a miracle. Okay, that's, that's one possible explanation. But realize that there are a lot of invisible things going on in your body all the time. Your immunity is always kicking in. Usually when people have cancer, they're getting some sort of treatment or something. And, and so, you know, there's all kinds of secondary causation that can result in the, uh, in the cure of cancer. Um, but what tends to happen is we pray for miracles that are small miracles, invisible miracles. And I think we all know intrinsically that these the fantastic kinds of miracles that we see in the Gospels don't happen. I always I always ask, okay, you, know, you ask someone, do you, do you would you pray for a miraculous recovery of someone who has cancer? And people say, yeah, okay. Would you ever would you ever pray for someone who lost an arm at in, in Vietnam that tomorrow their arm would? Come back up, and the answer: well, No, I don't do that. Well, why not? Well, because I don't think. Well, I must not have enough faith or something. No, I, 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 I don't think God does that kind of. God, God doesn't do big miracles. Today. He only does little miracles, invisible miracles, the, the the kind that take place in you know behind closed doors. Uh, those are the kinds of miracles. Well, that's not the kind of miracles we find in Scripture. In fact, Acts seems to suggest that. The more spectacular, the more public, the more visible it is, the, uh, the, 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 the more certainty we can have that a miracle took place. And so to, uh, to limit miracles today to the, the invisible type is, I think, really to do injustice to the idea of a miracle. So to answer the question, should I pray for miracles? I pray for God to heal. Um, I generally assume that he's going to heal through secondary causation. Through medicine, through diet, through natural immunity kicking in, so on and so forth. I don't I don't pray for a miracle. Some would say, well you have got no faith. Um, and 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 you know perhaps there's a factor there, but I think the issue is 
I don't think God is doing miracles. I've got good reason from Scripture to think that providence is the way he works now. And and there's 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 nothing wrong with providence. It's not like I'm taking a step back and saying, eh, miracle, eh, providence, whatever. Uh, providence is just as spectacular as miracle. In fact, I think in some ways more so. You know, when when you see how everything comes together in the plan of God to accomplish something, you can say, wow, the, the, the plan of God whereby he providentially directs all things together to these predetermined ends. Now that's, that's something to, to say wow about. And I don't think we should say wow any more quietly uh, for providence than we would for miracles. So uh, any thoughts on that? The, 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 I'm just going to say that, that's such an important concept that providence is second causation. But God deserves just as much glory yes. for his providential acts. But people don't think so. So you have cancer, you find a doctor, he's got a new drug, and you get cured because they got this new drug. God deserves just as much glory for that providential act as he did if he just snapped his fingers and but people don't think so. They don't get it. You know, if we don't have miracles, then God's not doing. God does. You know, it's not as glorious. It's not as great. But we fail to thank God for His providential working. I think one of the great joys we have is, as human beings is the discovery of what God has already here for yeah, us. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In some ways, you can think of it as. You know, it's even more amazing that he's working through, as, as opposed to directly causing. Right. You know? Right. Yep. So there's the. It's probably always, always existed, but these signs and wonders. People. There's Bethel School of Supernatural, whatever it is, out in Redmond. Right, right. That guy's a lunatic, but but gold falls from the ceiling. Now, is there something satanic going on, or is that just somebody planting things? And <laughs> yeah, my suspicion is uh, that it's all that it's all slick man. But yeah. uh, I, I suppose there's occasions, perhaps, where satanic influence can be responsible, but. It, I, I'm inclined to think that God rarely lets Satan do miracles. Okay. Well, if, he's, if he's restricting himself from doing miracles, he's I think a he's speaker at a school that claims he's raised twenty some people from the dead. It's never happened in the U.S. though. Yeah. <laughs> never documented. What about? Uh, <laughs> I tried Greek reading some Aquinas one time, and his book on prayer and about. Every couple pages, he was talking, mentioning a miracle. What do you do? They just assume that's an exaggeration. Yeah, I, it's hard to know. I, I, he, I mean, he may have a lesser definition of miracle, but you know, throughout history, there's been there's been you know, church history. There's been there's been periods of time where miracles were more highly prized than others. And Catholics, yes, Catholics, Catholics always tend to yes. allow for continuous miracles. You can't, you don't get sainthood unless right. they have like two confirmed miracles right, or right. something. Yeah. They have to investigate it and qualify and see if it's really a member. A member of saint has to do what a couple of miracles right. to canonize. So they still believe in ongoing miracles. Well, that, so we 
finished up pretty quickly there, but uh, I think we got it all in. So, you know, we'll next semester, uh, January 23rd, when the Wednesday night starts, and uh, that's 14 weeks. It goes to May the 1st. That's 15, but we're off for the first week in April. So the first week in April is the Easter break. So 14 weeks on Christology with uh, Mark next semester, from January 23rd to May, I think, 1st. Continue I'll send a note around. Same book or, or no? It's probably going to be something different, but I I haven't completely settled on it yet. But Redmond had a, a lot of that reading was Redmond, yeah. Doctor, yes, right. so you, you did have some. Yeah, it, he sort of interspersed that, so it was hard to. It's hard to. But I I think I, I think I'm going to use Sinclair Ferguson's book, but I'm not sure yet. Uh, we'll see. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent, Excellent job. Excellent job. Excellent job. Excellent job. Excellent. Very helpful.